The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old school paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. The dice determine all. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. In Chapter 19, Maynard Bagari and his mercenaries pursue and catch up to Aradine and her companions as they make a hurried departure from Burke. The party is heading south to answer a summons from the Dwarven Lord of the High Forge while simultaneously avoiding the law of Camertine. Fortune favors them during the battle that ensues as they manage to force the mercenaries to dismount and then, after a fight, to surrender. Bagari is given a grievous wound but, though denied his revenge, he does escape and keeps his life. After the battle, the party continues along until they reach the foothills, where they find a dwarven village. The reception they receive there is mixed, but they do not stay long enough to dwell on the reason. Instead, they proceed up the mountain trail toward the High Forge Citadel. Before they arrive, Harl all but admits that the summons that freed Aradine was a forgery. He's not sure how they'll be received when they arrive or if there will be any consequences. Chapter 20, Part 1, Day 24, Night, Party Status, Harl, 8 out of 8 hit points, Kagan, 16 out of 16 hit points, Eredin, 8 out of 8 hit points, Gyrios, 14 out of 14 hit points, Umura, 10 out of 10 hit points, Spells Available, Umura has memorized. Hold portal. Gyrios has prayed for. Cure light wounds. The air grew cold and dark, and one by one the companions fell silent. Above them, the firmament gradually filled with stars, diamond dust on a bed of black velvet. The moon had waxed to half a silver disk. It shone upon the mountainscape through which they traveled and cast its ghostly rays upon the bald granite outcroppings that jutted from the ground in awesome slabs. By and by, the trail narrowed and became steeper, but the ponies knew the way and were sure of foot. Balifer could have dropped the reins and they would have continued along no differently. At some point, the dwarf had produced a long-stemmed pipe, and presently he puffed away on it, making the tip glow orange. Every so often, he blew out a long and fragrant cloud. Kagan adjusted his position in the cart, sore in several places from the bumpy ride, 
and growing listless with the constant zigzagging of the trail. How long before we can see the High Forge? he asked. Hmm? Oh, you caught me dreaming. What was that you say? The High Forge Citadel. How long will it be before we can see it? You are looking at it now, came the reply. All I see is a sheer cliff wall, said Kagan. He pointed. That's the High Forge? All I see is rock? The North Tower, replied Balifer with obvious pride. You cannot be blamed for not noticing, though. The tower is inside the cliff wall, and had you the eyes of an eagle, you would be hard-pressed to see him. But there are a hundred arrowslits pointed straight at us, and a few of them have watchful dwarfs watching through them, too. Crossbows? Quite right. If this were wartime, we'd be riding straight through the killing field. If this were wartime, I'd hope to have better mounts, joked Kagan. He looked to his left and right, noticing that the path had both steepened and narrowed. An army passing this way would be able to walk five abreast at most. They would be at the complete mercy of the invisible archers above them. Furthermore, he considered, they would have great difficulty bringing war horses, much less siege weaponry, up this way, and there were no other paths to choose from. From this direction, the citadel would be all but impenetrable. Clearly, the High Forge was more than just a forge and mine. It was a fortress built directly into the mountaintop so that it blended perfectly with the great, flat, natural slabs of the mountain itself. Back in the days when humans and dwarves were at uh, war, was the High Forge ever put under siege? Kagan asked. Well, dwarves and men have been at odds in the past, and there are those who would have it so again, but they have never openly been at war. Balifer took a long pull at his pipe and paused, as though choosing his next words carefully. Wherefore, as we dwarves call it, and as you would be wise to learn before we arrive, was not designed to protect dwarves from attacks from the lands of men. You'll see that the North Tower is the least of its defenses, as we draw closer. And the moon lit their way as they did so. Eventually, the air became cooler still and noticeably thinner. The grasses and trees all but disappeared, and there was only the loose stone of the wagon track and the massive dominance of the mountainside. The road finally flattened out and stopped switching back on itself. It began a gentle curve that hugged the mountain. On the left was stark, unbroken granite wall, and on the right, only a few feet divided them from empty space. A sheer drop of thousands of feet into a misty gulf of crags and boulders. Kagan, who dared to look over the edge, jerked his head back at the first pangs of vertigo, drawing a chuckle from Balifer. I'll not doubt it takes some getting used to, laughed the dwarf. By the gods, I think we're above the cloud line, said Kagan. I'm not sure I could ever get used to this. He had never been up this high before. He felt a light sensation in the pit of his stomach that was not especially pleasant. As the wagon continued to trace the edge of the mountainside, Kagan decided to remain in his seat. After a half hour, Balifer announced, Ah, there we are, just ahead. Our little home in the sky. Little, it was not. As they moved along the curving path, the stone wall drew aside like a curtain, revealing Dwarvar, a sliver at a time. Finally, the fortress came fully into view. Two great doors marked the entrance to the High Forge, thirty feet tall and made of thick, cast iron. They'd been enchanted with ancient magic so as to never rust. At the top corner of each, mirror images of a huge, helmeted dwarven face had been worked into the very stone of the mountainside. Currently, the great doors were closed. They had not been opened for hundreds of years, but set into the lower left corner was a smaller entrance, a single door with a portcullis behind it. This door was wide open, 
and as their wagon drew nearer so that the graven sentinels above seemed to stare down upon them, they heard a mechanism catch from within, and the portcullis began to rise. A pair of dwarves emerged wearing long fur-lined cloaks, with the hoods pulled up. One of them carried a walking stick, the other followed a few paces behind. Balifer pulled up the reins and the ponies came to a stop. He hopped down from his perch at the front of the wagon and came around to the rear, where he helped Aradine and Umura down. The rest of the party followed and stretched, massaging their bruised backsides and working out stiff muscles. Harl had already hopped off the wagon and had almost reached the two cloaked figures. When they met, all three dwarves bowed stiffly at the waist, and then Harl threw a warm embrace around the dwarf with the walking stick. Valley, so good to see you again, my friend. And you as well, Master Stonecarver. You'll find that you have been missed. How have things been since I left for Burktown? Harl wanted to know. Since you left to live among the men, replied the older dwarf, looking up at the approaching group of humans. Things have grown more difficult for my lord, I fear. In fact, he stole another quick glance at Kagan, Gyrios, Umura, and Eredin. Things have become quite bad indeed. More whispers of fish eaters and pillow dwarves, I suppose, asked Harl. More than whispers, I'm afraid, Master Stonecarver. Much more than whispers now. My, but you have been gone long enough to have missed the worst. How have I received no word of this until now? I think Lord Kleneth wished he had called you back to Duravar sooner, but for now, let it rest. Is the Lord angered by my... The other held up a hand. As I say, let it rest for now. Let me welcome our guests. We will discuss these other tidings at another time. He stepped aside to let Harl pass and exchange greetings with his attendant, and then approached the party. He bowed low to them at the waist. Not knowing how to respond, they bowed awkwardly in return. Well met, travelers. I am Valiador Glimmerax, Seneschal of Duravar. We are most honored by your visit. Most honored indeed. Thank you, said Gagan. We are all happy to be here. He didn't know what else to say. Lord Claneth wishes you to know that our people are in your debt. You have done us a great service in returning our beloved Malgi. His family desires greatly to make your acquaintance. He bowed formally again. Valiador's wrinkled face seemed to show that he now struggled for the right words. The timing of your visit is not ideal, however. We have some, uh, but that, but that can wait. Come, come, let us go inside. He motioned to his attendant, who gave Harl a two-handed handshake and then another quick bow before jogging up to meet them. This is Anelian, my son, said Valiador. Anelian bent forward in a bow once again. He will take care of your things. Anelian? The dwarf, a yellow-haired youth with a short beard, bowed again and smiled warmly. He moved toward the back of the wagon to say hello to Balifer and began unpacking the party's gear. Valiador motioned for the others to follow him as he walked back toward the portcullis. He looked over his shoulder as he walked. Welcome to Duravar. Welcome, travelers. Seems like you're looking for a story. Well, I got one for you. It involves adventure, friendship, and all hey, sorts hey, of... Hey, uh, Earl, why don't you tell him about that time I stole that big-ass melon? 
Yeah, yeah, I, I was going for more. Or you epic. could tell him about the time I kicked her ass, Earl. I wouldn't ever tell him. Do I need to get time. my ref gear on? Okay, everyone, shut up. Now come with me as I tell you a story from afar. Hey everybody, my name's David. I'm the DM for From Afar Podcast. A From Afar Podcast is all about four friends separated by distance, but brought together by adventure. Hope you all stop by and give us a listen. Thanks. Dramatis Personae Harl Stone Carver Even though he's a dwarf, as the youngest brother of Thurn Stone Carver, Harl has always had big shoes to fill. As part of the most prestigious family of the Dwarvar, every member of the Stonecarver family has a legacy to live up to, and this is true now more than ever. Harl is 38 years old, which is less than half Thern's age. He looks up to and loves his brother, and if the need were ever to arise, would put Thern's safety above all others, even his own. Unlike Thern, Harl does not have bright red hair, but a crop of bushy black that he wears in a tight topknot, and a voluminous beard that hides much of his face. His build is short and wide, making him somewhat slower than most dwarven fighters in combat. Harl issues the use of a shield in favor of a battle axe that he wields with deadly efficacy. He hates the goblin race and has dispatched more than a few using this weapon. Harl does not use missile weapons, partly on principle and partly because his aim is so poor he wouldn't be able to hit the front doors of Dwarvar at ten paces, and with the wind at his back. Even more than Thern, Harl finds the human race fascinating. His position as Thern's assistant in Burke was one he volunteered for, both out of genuine curiosity, a desire to expand his horizons, and for the purpose of guarding his brother should he face any danger. He spent a full year with Thern in Burke, acting in this capacity. After joining the scouting expedition under Captain Tor, Harl met and grew very fond of several new companions. He feels a particular bond with Aradine, whom he has brotherly feelings toward. He enjoys the company of the others as well, although he finds that the cleric Gyrios talks far too much, and the magic user Umura seems to think conversation consists solely of asking questions about dwarven grammar and vocabulary. At present, Harl is most worried that the Lord of the Dwarvar, Cleneth Stonecarver, a cousin many times removed, will not approve of his having forged a summons, an action that was illegal, but necessary and fully justified in Harl's opinion. He fears he might be punished and forced to give up his life among the humans. Before we return to our story, there's one small bit of business concerning our new player character that we need to address. Harl joined our story as a level one dwarf in episode 10. Having survived 10 episodes, he now levels up, his having switched from NPC to PC status has nothing to do with this. He would have leveled up in any event. In the last episode, we rolled up his stats. In BX rules, saving throws, and even to hit scores do not improve at level 2 for a dwarf. So all there is to do now is to double his hit points, from 8 to 16, and see if his attributes have improved at all. Let's get a d6 ready and see what happens. The first stat is strength. A 1. Intelligence. A four. No changes so far. Next up is wisdom. Another four. Dexterity. This is Harl's lowest attribute. The roll. A five. No good. Constitution. Another five. Charisma. Five yet again. It looks as though Harl will remain unchanged through at level two. Ah well, you can't win them all. 
Chapter 20 Part 2 Day 24 Night With the exception of an increase in Harl's hit point maximum and total from 8 to 16, the party status is unchanged. Did you know that you are the first humans to cross this threshold in several centuries? Once inside, Seneschal Valiador Glimrax stooped to pick up a hooded lamp that he'd left by the threshold. He pulled back the cover, and a soft orange glow escaped, reaching out into the vast space within the citadel. The lamp itself was a simple cage containing a beetle the size of a man's hand. The strange insect sat complacently in the cage, cleaning its antenna with its forelegs. Two glands, each an inch across, decorated the insect's head right above its eyes. Another similar gland could be seen on its abdomen. These glowed a bright orange and were the source of the light. Valiador noticed the party's surprise at the light source and chuckled. <laughs> we call them Branabil, fire beetles in the common tongue. I suppose you have never seen one before, but here in Duravar, you will find they are a common enough sight. This one is young. Their light is strongest when they're young. After they mature, they can become hostile and much larger than this one. Quite dangerous, really, so we harvest them for their glands. Girios peered at the creature in the cage. But Seneschal Valiador, isn't it true that all dwarves can see in the dark? We wouldn't be very good miners if we couldn't, replied the other. But we do need light to read and for our craftsmen and artisans to do their work. He held up the cage so Girios could get a better look at the glossy brown beetle. It chittered at him. Branabil are wonderfully useful. I'm sure you'll see them again. Anyway, if you will follow me. The world beyond the doors reminded Girios of nothing more than one of the great cathedrals of Camranth. The temperature inside dropped a few degrees, and the atmosphere felt slightly under-pressured. The air inside was still, but somehow it had a hollow sound. It was scented with the smell of stone, if such a thing was possible. In stark contrast to the natural chaos of the outside world, the interior was a place of geometric perfection and symmetry. Five massive pillars lined either side of what was clearly a great hall. These pillars, he noted, were seamless, cut from the rock itself. In fact, the whole space had apparently been excavated as a single piece from the mountainside with exacting perfection. No stones had been joined, no mortar was evident. It boggled the mind to think of the effort such a construction had required, and the time. It must have taken centuries to build. Girios looked up. The vaulted ceiling extended beyond the reach of the Branabil lamp's orange light. The party crossed the hall, footsteps echoing on the smooth floor. They passed a pair of pillars on either side, and another pair, and then another. When they'd reached the end, Girios judged that they had covered well over a hundred feet. The space was half as wide across, he could just make out the walls at the edge of their vision. Here at the far end was another pair of double doors. These were a good 15 feet tall and 10 wide, smaller than the entrance doors, but still enormous, especially by dwarven standards. Like the others, these were made of cast iron and figured a stonework dwarven warrior to either side. These were not simply busts, however. They were life-size statues of uncanny realism. This pair of doors was shut and remained so as the group turned left, entering a passageway that led off at a 90-degree angle from the hall. This space was much smaller than the Great Hall, but still roomy enough to let them walk four abreast with ease. Valiador led them past several iron doorways, all of which featured a predominant heraldric sign worked into the metal. Giros marveled at them as they went. Here was a pair of crossed battle axes in silver. Next was a larger-than-life ant crawling diagonally across a shield. 
Another depicted a trio of mushrooms. A fourth showed eight hammers circling an anvil. At the fifth door, they stopped. This door's image was a pickaxe on a round shield. Here we are. Harl, I'll leave you for now. I shall return tomorrow, early. I suggest you get whatever sleep you can. The elder dwarf leaned in closer and asked Harl a question in Dwarvish. Umura, listening, caught a few words and tried to recall their meaning, although she had not learned much of the Dwarvish language yet. A moderate success on her intelligence check shows that she has understood just a little. Valiador asked, Did you see, or were you seen, or something like that? Harl, eyes bright, simply nodded once in response, causing Valiador to frown and nod before bidding the party goodnight and taking his leave. The party was woken very early the next morning. In fact, they each managed only about five hours of sleep. From the front door to the Stonecarver's family complex, they had departed the Spartan minimalism of the Great Hall and entered a world of rich art and craftsmanship. Every table and chair was a masterpiece. Tapestries decorated the walls and woven rugs covered the floors of both rooms and hallways. Kagan was goggle-eyed at the sheer amount of gold and silver he saw. Plates, cups, statuettes, and other decorations gleamed in the orange light of their Branabil lamp. They stopped to admire none of it but followed Harl through several passageways until they came to what he described as a guest room. I'm afraid you'll not find these beds much to your liking, he apologized. Dwarves slept on stone slabs, with shallow spaces hollowed out for the back of the head and a small raised arch to fit the lower back. They used no pillows, mattresses, or blankets. I hope you'll not be too cold. He placed the Branabil lamp on a short table and took his leave, looking preoccupied. Umura threw her cloak over the cage once they'd each found a bed. The fire beetle mostly stayed silent. Occasionally they could hear it scuttling about. The party members tried their best to find comfort on the beds, but after a solid effort, each of them had resigned themselves to sleeping on the floor. And that is where Harl found them, stiff and underslept, when he returned just a half dozen hours later and lifted the cover off the lamp. Harl was dressed once again in his plate mail, and his axe was still hanging from his belt, Girios might have asked the dwarf why he was dressed for battle, but the sudden lamplight showed something much more alarming. By Mazagar, child, what has happened to your poor neck? He exclaimed. The flesh around Aridine's throat had turned purple and black where the hangman's rope had been. Let me see, let me help, said Girios. His hands were already glowing with his spell of curing. Aridine allowed the priest to touch her skin, and the glow from his hands passed into her. Some of the bruising subsided, but a black line remained, drawn across her neck. Eredine tried to thank the priest, but no words came out. She tried again. Thank you, my friend. It doesn't hurt so much anymore. Her voice was nothing but a raspy whisper. Rest your voice, and say no more, child, said Girios. In time, I'm sure it will return. In truth, Eredine's voice would not return, not without the aid of powerful magic. The hanging had crushed her voice box utterly. <clears throat> Harl cleared his throat. We're summoned. Gather all of your things. Preoccupation had given way to worry. Harl chewed his lower lip as the party finished their preparations, complaining and rubbing their raw eyes. When they dressed and donned their armor, he motioned for them to follow and led them back through the apartments and all of its splendor. 
In a few minutes, they were back in the hallway and retracing their steps past the symbols they'd seen before. Hammers and anvil. Mushroom trio. Ant on a shield. Crossed silver battle axes. And then they were back in the great hall. They found Valiador waiting for them. You were all here? Very good, come close. Valiador made a stiff bow at the waist and then motioned for them to draw forward. My dear, he said, looking at Aerodine with concern. You're injured. Our cleric has seen to her, said Kagan. She'll be all right. Well, at any rate, please take my cloak. Aerodine was still dressed in only her prisoner's shift. Having felt cold since they arrived, she accepted the item gratefully and threw it around her body. Although it was fitted for a dwarf, it still hung to her knees. The fur lining felt good against her skin. Come with me. Valiador bid them follow as he started walking back toward the entrance of the Great Hall. As I mentioned before, you are all honored guests here at Duravar. Very honored indeed. I hope you will not find this rude of me. You see, the timing of your visit, as I mentioned before, is difficult. Things are not... He looked around, saw the pillars of the Great Hall, and found his word. Stable here at Duravar. Not at present. If known, your arrival would, and this is not your fault, but the failing of my people, it would cause further unrest. And so I must be so bold and ask a further favor from you. Where's Lord Kleneth? asked Harl. Make me wait no longer, Valiador. Valiador stopped walking and took Harl's hand in his own. Lord Kleneth does not yet know you are here. Harl was clearly not expecting this news. He started to ask a question, but the Elder Dwarf cut him off. I intercepted your message. You will have to trust me. The first tremors of unrest have begun, and soon the High Forge will shake. Lord Kleneth needs allies near. That is why I must ask you to do this service. I feel terrible asking for anything on top of what you have already done for us, but this is necessary. It is necessary, or I would not ask it. You will be gone only a day. When you return tonight, I will have everything in place. Lord Kleneth will expect you, and, I hope, order will be more firmly... He tapped the floor twice with his walking stick. In place. Tell me, Harl, will you do this for me? Harl sighed. Go on, then. What would you have us do? Anatar Ironskin, bronze-ranked crossbow sentry, stifled a yawn and scratched his yellow beard. His shift was almost over and he was bored senseless. Being one of the most junior archers in all of Dwervar, it was his job to watch the western approach to the citadel during the worst of all available shifts. He stood sentry during the small hours, from 2 until 6 a.m. Each day was more boring than the last. Ostensibly, he had a partner to maintain an unbroken watch, even when nature called or some other task took him from his arrow slit. Some partner. Fofer Longbeard was a drunk and a fool, not to mention a lousy shot, whose only talent lay in sleeping while standing still. Fofer was with him now, mending his post, just twenty feet and several arrow slits away. The older dwarf had been snoring for hours. Anotar couldn't complain. Fofer was his senior and silver-ranked. Dwarven culture put a strict taboo on complaining of your betters. Outside, the first rays of dawn touched the cloud tops, which he looked down upon from this vantage. At last, he could leave and curl up to sleep in the barracks. 
Typically, Anatar would drop something or otherwise make some noise, waking Fofur without having to call attention to the older dwarf having been asleep. Fofur would sputter and grunt, curse Anatar for a clumsy fool, and walk away, leaving the bronze-ranked dwarf to wait for the relief shift. That's how it usually went, but this time something happened to make Anatar look out his arrow slit a few moments longer. From below, he heard the familiar mechanical sounds of the portcullis being raised. The noise cut short, as though the gate were only being halfway opened. Then the sound came again as it shut. That was curious. A moment later, he saw a group of four humans and a dwarf emerge and head away from Dwervar toward the trail that led to Gruenmog's shrine. Barok, his grandfather, had instructed Anatar to watch for this exact thing. Anyone seen heading for the shrine was to be reported immediately. And fish-eaters here at Dwervar. Lord Cleneth had crossed the line this time. No. No, his grandfather would never stand for this. It was an outrage. Old Barak would want them followed. Perhaps he would even get the job of doing it. Finally, a chance to prove his worth. Anatar licked his lips. Not wanting Fofur to see what he had, Anatar waited until he could hear the footsteps of the relief watch headed their way before he dropped his iron plate to the floor where it clattered noisily. Fofur roused himself from sleep, pinched the bridge of his nose, stuck out a hip, and broke wind. Pick up that plate, greasy fingers, Fofur growled. He didn't even glance at the arrow slit. The silver-ranked archer simply walked out of the guardroom, scratching his rear end. Anatar smirked. Today would not be such a boring day, after all. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you enjoy what you've heard and you'd like to support the show, please consider leaving a five-star review on iTunes. I'd like to read yet another one of your great reviews right now. This one is from the USA. Dmanly45 writes, Looking for a different D&D podcast? Then look no further. Great story and great storytelling with a dark, old-school fantasy novel vibe. Give episode zero a listen. You won't regret it. Well, thank you very much, Dmanly45. I really appreciate your taking the time to post that review and I'll post another one of these great listener reviews next time. I also owe a debt of gratitude to the people who have lent their voice to the show. Today's episode features John Lopez playing Balifer, the ore trading dwarf. You can find John at RPG underscore solo on Twitter. Valiador Glimmerax the Seneschal is played by Benjamin of Lawful Great Adventures. And finally, Fofer, who we meet briefly at the end of the show, is voiced by Austin Moraga of the Ironbound Chest. If you're not familiar with these content creators, I highly recommend that you check them out. As always, you can find me on Instagram or contact me on Twitter using at manticoretale. Taleofthemanticore at gmail.com is yet another way for us to get in touch. For rants, musings, show notes, and occasional maps, character sheets, tables, and other items related to the show, please visit taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com. The adventure continues in the next chapter of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. Would you like to know more about some of the most influential role-playing games out there? Roll to Save is a podcast dedicated to the history of RPGs and it can be found wherever you get your podcasts from and at rolltosave.blog. We take a long hard look at the origins of some of the biggest games and their often turbulent histories. Roll to Save also looks at how modern games have been shaped by the games that came before. So, if you fancy delving into the fascinating history of role-playing games, 
visit rolltosave.blog or search for Roll to Save on your podcast directory of choice. You can also contact us at at savepodcast on Twitter. Join us on a trip down memory lane. You might be surprised at what you learn.